Well, yeah. So on the soccer field, if you make a mistake, you fall down on the field and maybe sprain your ankle in the yeah. climbing world. Yeah, you, there's big consequences. So you want to do it right. So, I mean, I, I joined the Arizona Mountaineering Club. Um, again, it was like, felt like it was joining wrestling the wrestling team all over again. You know, I showed up at the club and um, they embraced me, you know. And, you know, see, I think people want to embrace you. I think, you know, people people are good at heart and they you know they sometimes their fears and their apprehensions turn into uh you know closing the door in your face or discrimination you know it's all that but that's all based on ignorance and fear so um and i've had a lot of that in my life but you know the arizona mountaineering club embraced me they were like yeah i'll take you under my wing and i'll teach you how to build anchors and teach you how to um, do this sport as safely as possible so um, I had a lot of great mentors. I'd go out in these groups on the weekends and uh, we'd be all learning how to do things. And uh, I learned how to use trekking poles to navigate when I'm hiking up to the base of the climbs and following somebody on a, with a bear bell. They'd jingle a bell in front of me and they'd talk to me in ways that, you know, would tell me if there was consequences, big cliff to the right or left or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then I learned over time to scan my hands and feet across the rock face in a systematic way and be able to hang and lock off on one hand while, you know, I did a high step with my feet and I, you know, raised up and started scanning with my other hand Mm -hmm. and I'm on a top rope at first. So you have a rope above you. And if you have a good, strong anchor, that rope's not going to break. All you're going to do is fall and dangle. So in that respect, climbing, you know, didn't have a huge learning curve, uh, of danger because you know you 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 have a, a safety system i'm srini rao and this is the unmistakable creative podcast where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements built thriving businesses written best-selling books and created insanely interesting art for more check out our 500 episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com This episode of The Unmistakable Creative is brought to you by 2020, where creatives go to get inspiring, authentic stock photos. If you're tired of scrolling through uninspiring staged images, check out 2020. Their images are crowdsourced from real-world photographers, and you can choose from millions of high-quality photos available under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Unmistakable Creative listeners a free trial of five photos so you can see for yourself. To start your trial, go to 2020.com slash unmistakable. That's the word 20, then 20.com slash unmistakable to get your first five photos for free. Thanks to 2020 for sponsoring today's episode. This episode is also sponsored by HostGator. If you're looking to build a website or move an existing one, HostGator can help. They have 24-7 live support via phone chat and email, an easy-to-use website builder if you're not tech-savvy, and if you want to move your existing website from your existing host, they make it free and simple. Visit HostGator.com slash creative and use the promo code creative at checkout for 15% off all of their hosting packages. Eric, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so I was uh, introduced to you by uh, way of uh, a group that has sent me multiple guests, but you know your story really stood out to me, which we will get into it in quite a bit of detail. Uh, but before we get there, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living, and what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career? My dad was a was a Marine or is a Marine. I should say you're always a Marine. And he was an aviator. He flew a four Skyhawks in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. He had two tours in Vietnam. So he was pretty adventuresome. Although he always told me like, you know, he was nothing compared to the guys on the ground, like the infantry that were, you know, taking the real brunt of the, of the war. Mm -hmm. But, uh, he was doing his best to support the troops. So my dad's a real patriot and, um, was a Marine. And then he was the captain of his football team at Princeton. And then he, uh, joined, uh, um, uh, a company, a pharmaceutical company. And we traveled around the world. We actually lived in Hong Kong when I was a kid. And that really shaped my, um, sense of adventure, you know, just going and exploring these incredible mountains on the interior of Hong Kong Island, uh, and visiting these remote temples and really cool sanctuaries. Uh, that was absolutely amazing. And, uh, and then my mom also, um, was quite adventuresome. She ran a store. She imported, um, 
like all these furniture, all this furniture and stuff from from different uh, places around Asia. And, they, and then she got into um, importing uh, beads and semi-precious stones and traveling around Africa and Asia, you know, uh, collecting the, this cool stuff and making it into jewelry. Uh, and she, uh, you know, had her her line like in Bloomingdale's and Saks Fifth Avenue, and was really it was exploding. And uh, you know, at my house, there the front room would be full of ladies that would uh, be my mom's friends, all making this jewelry, and uh, they were barely able to keep up. But um, unfortunately, that business ended because my mom got killed in a car accident when I was 16. So, mm-hmm. um, so my dad after that became sort of Mr. Mom and. Uh, he never missed a wrestling practice or wrestling practice or wrestling match, and uh, and he really was uh, was there for me, uh, even though it was you know really really tough uh, uh, last few years of high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a couple of questions come from that. Um, I know that there's a, around this time is when you started to lose your sight, correct? If I remember from from you know uh, what I read in the book, and two things. Um, one, did you feel that your sense of adventure that you had sort of been brought up with was threatened um, when you started to have this experience? And you know, if so, how did you deal with it? And also, you know, the the thing about losing your mom at an early age really struck me as as one of the formative experiences of your life. And I'm curious how you navigated that period of loss because it seems you know like for most of us. Uh, something like that is sort of metaphorical darkness, but for you, it's both metaphorical and literal. So I'm curious, you know, how you processed it and how you came out of it. Yeah. I mean, it was like, uh, getting punched in the nose and then just getting, uh, and then my mom dying was like a sledgehammer upside the head. So it was a double whammy for sure. Mm. Um, and, uh, I went blind just before my freshman year in high school. So I loved those sports like uh, baseball and I love basketball. My dad, would work with me, you know, I never could see very well, but I could see the backboard and I could see the, um, like the, uh, the paint on the, on the wood floor. So I could, so I could, you know, get lined up with the key, you know, by looking down at the floor. Um, so I had a lot of tricks and systems to be able to navigate and orient myself on the basketball court. But, uh, at some point I just couldn't see anymore. And, uh, basketball wasn't really an option. Um, my dad was a really can do kind of guy. Uh, and, um, you know, like, so I give you an example of my parents, like they, they, of course would say no to things. Like I was a little crazy guy. Um, when I was going blind and my friend had a mini bike, uh, like an 80 and I'd go flying around the neighborhood and, um, I felt the, uh, I could see like a little glint of a windshield, um, and I zipped around it and it turned out it was my mom coming home from the grocery store. So when she got home, I was like in huge trouble and, and no more, no more motorcycles cause I was going to kill myself. But on the other side, my dad was watching me, I would, you know, and this is in the eighties and my, uh, and, and evil Knievel was big at the time. So I would take my little mountain bike and go flying down our steep driveway. And I had these uh, wooden planks built and I would fly, I'd hit one plank. I'd fly through the air, like 10 feet. I land on a big plyboid board ramp that I set up. Um, one time, even my brothers got, uh, 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 laid down between the two ramps and, uh, and that was the ultimate sign of trust. But at one point, I couldn't see uh, the the ramps anymore. They blended into the road, into the pavement, and uh, and I was really getting frustrated. My dad watched that, and so instead of just saying no more bikes, like no more jumping your bike like you love to do, he said, "Let's try something." He went and painted the ramps this really bright, bright orange. And even with my waning eyesight, I could see the ramps contrasting the road, and I was able to jump my bike another six months before I went totally blind. So I really think my parents were the foundation to a lot of the beliefs that I have and the possibility thinking that I uh, that ultimately became this idea of no barriers. Mm. Um- I'm curious, you know, when you go from kind of being able to see, like, well, what is the transition like to going into that kind of a, a sort of darkness, like, I mean, day to day life, like, how do you how do you adjust to the experiences like and what what misperceptions do you think those of us who actually can see have about somebody like you? Well, it was really scary. I mean, I I was losing sight 
and throughout middle school. So like I would be able to see the whiteboard one day and the next day, day I wouldn't be able to see it. You know, one day I'd come in from the, from playing outside and uh, I, I wouldn't be able to, my eyes wouldn't adjust to the inside light, like of the hallway, you know, kind of hallways and schools are kind of dark and I, I, I couldn't navigate. Uh, sometimes I get lost coming back from the playground even, you know, just like I couldn't find the building and I'd be lost out on the field, just like, you know, it, it's real panic. Um, so yeah, going blind was hard because the the readjustment every day, waking up to a new environment, you know, uh, just like familiar things like walking down to the bus stop. Mm-hmm. At one point I couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore. Like the shadow and the light would get in my eyes and I, I just couldn't, I couldn't see. So like these familiar things began to seem really terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, what, uh, what was the impact of it on your relationships with your friends? Well, it was awkward because, you know, you, your friends are, are, you know, everybody's wanting to be cool. You know, like I remember when I first, you know, I went totally blind, by the way, um, about a week before my freshman year in high school. So I walked into school for the first time, newly blinded and, uh, you know, being led around. And, you know, that's not a good look when you're a freshman. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, my friends were kind of like, you know, who is this dork? You know, I felt like this egg that had been broken, you know, like a cracked in the in the middle of the hallway and everybody was kind of stepping around it going, Ooh, I don't know what, you know, I don't want to, um, I don't want to step in that, you know? And so, yeah. And I was thinking the whole world's looking down on me, pitying me. Uh, I hated that feeling that really messed with my ego. Uh, and, uh, and, and I didn't want to, I didn't want to be blind. And, and so I wouldn't use my cane or my learn braille or, you know, do the things that blind people need to do because I was so angry and, you know, and then I'd come through the cafeteria and my friends, um, you know, would all be sitting there uh, on the table, you know, just like joking and food fights and having a great time. And and I'd sit at a table by myself just listening to all that and wishing I could be a part of it. I mean, so going blind was one thing, you know, actually seeing darkness. That's scary and all. But for me, the biggest fear was not being able to be a part of life. Uh, that, you know, I'd be swept to the sidelines and I'd just, I'd be forgotten that I'd be this little Donnie dark character, like, you know, left in a dark room. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what caused the anger and fear to shift? Well, it was a lot of things. I think, I mean, even though I was angry and frustrated, I never lost a sense of hope, you know, like I wanted my life to be an adventure. Um, and uh, one of the things that uh, my brother told me was that uh, he had heard about blind people wrestling. Mm-hmm. And so I remember, you know, one afternoon thinking, I want to do this, you know, like I want to, and, and I, it, you know, I don't mean to be cheesy or anything, but I mean, I do, when I talk to my kids about this, I call it the open heart policy. I just, you know, as, as bitter and angry as you are, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and as much as you want to react and respond and blame and attack and do all that stuff that comes naturally to, to so many of us, to me, especially, you know, you just say, look, like that's, the, I got to keep my heart open here. Like I can't be, I can't get jaded. Uh, I got to turn inward and like, you know, try to grow what I have. And, and so I think I, I think I did that even though I didn't know how to explain it, but I remember that led me to tapping down the hallway with my cane towards that stinky, musty wrestling room and like being pretty scared. Cause like, how are these people going to accept me? And, uh, you know, and, and it was tradition in my high school that all the freshmen would line up and this hundred pound guy, he was a state champion. He would wrestle all the freshmen and it was basically designed to humiliate them, to just slam them into the mat and show them that they, they stunk. And, um, so he took the first guy and slammed him down and pinned him. The second guy slammed him down and pinned him. Third, I was third, I think. It took me and slammed me down, pinned me. And I was so happy because they hadn't like treated me any differently. The guy had taken my face and drilled it into the mat, just like you know the two other dorks in front of me. And I love that. I mean, it was like my family, like, thank you, this is my family. And 
Um, I, you know, even though I stunk, I stunk like maybe three seconds better than the guy behind me. So I was pretty happy that day. And I, I dedicated myself to wrestling and that really was a big change. I think when you keep your heart open, uh, you know, not that you're going to not going to go out and get crushed and shattered from time to time, but you know, great possibilities come into your life as long as you're open enough, I think, to accept those, those opportunities. Tell me about the relationship you had with the wrestling coach. The coach was awesome. He would use me as the guinea pig. Mm-hmm. You know, I would be the guy that he would wrestle uh, to show the moves. And ultimately, when I became a, a wrestling coach, um, I would do the same thing. I would use a kid um, as my, as my, you know, I'd, I'd use the kids. I would show the moves to them, and then I would have them do the moves on me, so that I could, you know, tell whether they were doing it right or not. But anyway, yeah, my coaches were amazing. They, they loved having me a part of the team. I loved the team. It was my, it was my first uh, experience being a part of something bigger than me. Uh-huh. This episode of The Unmistakable Creative is sponsored by FreshBooks. So the working world has changed, and with the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. And to meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. You can create and send professional looking invoices in less than 30 seconds. You can set up online payments with just a couple of clicks and get paid up to four days faster. And you can see when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. Not only that, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day unrestricted trial for free to unmistakable creative listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com creative and enter unmistakable creative in the how did you hear about us section. You know, there's one other experience that really struck me uh, in the book, and that was this period of teaching middle school. And, and, you know, I know you said you struggled with it. Like there were points at which, you know, they wouldn't like, you know, accept the idea of a blind middle school teacher. So I'm I'm curious, um, you know, one, what was the experience like? um, And what was the dynamic like with the people that you taught? Like, how did how did it inform them? and, And what did you learn from them? Well, I love teaching. I, I didn't know what I was going to do. You know, uh, my, I, I, uh, I applied for like teach for America and I didn't get in and, and who knows why, but you know, I, I applied to a bunch of stuff and anyway, so I decided to go back and get a master's degree and it was a really great degree because you could teach in the day as part of the program as an assistant teacher. And then you could get, you know, go to school at nighttime and it was terrific. It was so amazing. So I got great experience in this school. And then I applied for a job and um, went to New York City to this job fair and got a job out in Arizona. I got turned down by a bunch of schools, but one school said, hey, you know, like a blind teacher, that's really cool. Like you have a great resume, a great philosophy of education, uh, and you also maybe could teach the kids a little something extra. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I, I was a middle school English and math teacher for four years after that. Uh, and I would have the kids do everything in the classroom. They would... Uh, pass out papers and correct each other's quizzes and even write on the board. Uh, uh, and and um, I, I realized that was like my second experience with a team because basically a classroom was a team. You know, it's, you know, it, you can either uh, lift each other up and be better as a team or, you you know, if, if you get a couple kids that are really upset or hurt or just not feeling a part of it, they can drag the whole classroom down. Uh, so you're trying to figure out this sort of fragile balancing act of how to lift the whole team up and get everyone working together. Uh, in my class, you couldn't raise your hand. So that was like a real thing that threw the kids at first, to, you know, wait a second. And they, they'd still raise their hands and, uh, the kids would laugh at them like, Hey, put your hand down, you idiot. You can't, you can't see you. <laughs> uh, so I had a blast teaching and, um, I could have taught forever. Honestly, I would have taught forever. I mean, I was so satisfied. It was so great waking up every day, you know, never questioning your impact uh, with this group of kids. Um, but uh, then I started feeling, you know, I'd been climbing a ton on the weekends and I felt like, you know, like I, I, I you're only young once. And uh, I think I could make a life as a climber and as an adventurer. Uh, and uh, so I, that started getting under my skin. And after four years, I decided that I was going to, I was going to 
make a break from teaching because there were so many climbs that I couldn't do in the middle of the year. You know, it was just unfair to the kids to take weeks off to do these climbing expeditions. So I had to, I had to decide. I feel like, uh, felt like I could always come back to teaching someday. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I, I definitely want to talk about the climbing and adventure aspect. Uh, it, like, there's so many things I've seen in climbing. I'm like, as a person who can see, I wouldn't probably do half the things you've done as a person who can't, uh, you know, they seem so terrifying to me. Um, so I, I want, I'm curious, uh, you know, how do you navigate the terrain of, of this sort of like daring level of adventure? We'll, we'll, we'll start with climbing and then get into some of the other ones. Um, you know, especially when, when, you know, the, the possibilities that occur with your errors are like pretty significant. Like in some cases, the downside being death, if you screw Mm -hmm. up, um, and you know, not having your sight, does that create like, you know, a much more amplified, uh, senses and like, uh, does it amplify all of your other senses? Um, well, yeah. So on the soccer field, if you make a mistake, you fall down on the field and maybe sprain your ankle in the yeah. climbing world. Yeah. You, there's big consequences. So you want to do it right. So, I mean, I, I joined the Arizona Mountaineering Club. Um, again, it was like, felt like it was joining wrestling, the wrestling team all over again. You know, I showed up at the club and, um, they embraced me, you know, and, you know, see, I think people want to embrace you. I think, you know, people, people are good at, heart and they you know they sometimes their fears and their apprehensions turn into uh you know closing the door in your face or discrimination you know it's all that but that's all based on ignorance and fear so um and i've had a lot of that in my life but you know the arizona mountaineering club embraced me they were like yeah i'll take you under my wing and i'll teach you how to build anchors and teach you how to um, do this sport as safely as possible so um, I had a lot of great mentors. I'd go out in these groups on the weekends and uh, we'd be all learning how to do things. And uh, I learned how to use trekking poles to navigate when I'm hiking up to the base of the climbs and following somebody on a, with a bear bell. They'd jingle a bell in front of me and they'd talk to me in ways that, you know, would tell me if there was consequences, big cliff to the right or left or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then I learned over time to scan my hands and feet across the rock face in a systematic way and be able to hang and lock off on one hand while, you know, I did a high step with my feet and I, you know, raised up and started scanning with my other hand Mm -hmm. and I'm on a top rope at first. So you have a rope above you. And if you have a good, strong anchor, that rope's not going to break. All you're going to do is fall and dangle. So in that respect, climbing, you know, didn't have a huge learning curve uh, of danger because, you know, you, you, you have a, a safety system. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then obviously I started learning, you know, wanting to push it and wanting to learn to lead. And then, yeah, it gets into a whole different situation because, you know, somebody has to bring that rope up the face and, and, and make the anchor. Mm-hmm. And when I started doing that, it was definitely, uh, out there, you know, it was, you know, people were like, how are you going to be able to place gear? Um, you know, meaning placing this metal gear in the crack, that's like, you know, engineering type work. It's like this, you know, then you clip your rope in and it's the thing that's going to hold you if you fall. And I found that I could do that with my fingers by feeling in the crack and matching up the piece of gear with the width of the crack. And, um, I, I would, um, uh, I would, I would, uh, they, they call it, um, on sighting where you would, you know, lead a rock face without doing it first so you don't have it all like mapped out in your brain and uh and 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 my friends called it for me non-sighting so uh you know that that is definitely when it when it got a little risky but i mean or i'd say more risky but as you know as long as you know it's a it's a grade of climbing well within my range you know you know life is sort of about reaching and taking a little bit of risk to get the reward so i it, it, it met my dig, my equation of how much risk i was willing to take mm-hmm. You know, so one thing I'm curious about um, is sort of the the biological reaction. So, like, I would I know if I could see everything that was happening in that situation, I would probably be ten times scared, scared, more scared because I could like look at the possibility of my death. Do you feel it the way a person with sight uh, does when they see it? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I can't look and see the big drop offs, but I mean, like, I can hear them. So. Blind people use this thing called echolocation and they can hear the rock. They click and they can hear the rock and the sound vibrations bouncing off of that object and coming back at you. And 
Also, you can hear the drop-offs in the same way that the, the, the sound vibrations just move out through space. So, yeah, I can tell where the drop-offs are. Um, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm blind, but I'm not blind in that way. Like, I know the consequences. I'm fully aware of what I'm doing. I ask a million questions, uh, you know, trying to map the situation out. Uh, and, you know, like crossing ladders on Everest, for instance, uh, you know, there's, there are these giant crevasses and you're walking across these ladders that are lashed together in space. And, uh, you know, like I couldn't see down to the bottom of those crevasses. I mean, maybe that would have been terrifying, but, uh, I still knew that if I fell, I mean, I was, you know, it's, it's a long way. Uh Um, and, and, and so I don't know if it's scary or falling into something you can see or falling into the unknown. It's all scary. So it's all sort of mere fear management, I guess. So let's talk about that. One, you know, how do you learn to manage your fear in situations like that? Um, and how do you keep pushing the limits of, of what you do? Because, I mean, you know, starting out sort of, you know, uh, rock climbing in Arizona to Everest, that's a pretty massive sort of leap uh, to go from, you know, something, you know, starting out to, you know, accomplishing what is apparently a gargantuan feat. So what what enables that? Like, how do you get from sort of starting out to the, the, the pinnacle, both literally and, you know, I guess, uh, metaphorically? Well, um, honestly, that's the subject I've been fascinated by for the last 20, 30 years is that process. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that process is very murky. And uh, I think the movies and fictional books sometimes do a maybe even a disservice because they like it make it look like a nice crescendo uh you know nice ramping arc upward you know with a nice you know some violin music playing at the top and it's not the way it is you know gross really tumultuous and and uh messy and there's some flailing and bleeding along the way even though you are trying to build that map that you're navigating in your life and so yeah when you know when i was uh having a blast climbing rock faces in the desert it was my friend sam bridgem who had attention deficit disorder he was a substitute teacher at my school and we had gotten to the top of this maybe 150 foot pinnacle and he said hey we should do something bigger and i said what and he said well how about denali I was like, Sam, that's a leap, you know, (laughs) only a guy with ADD would like leap in that way. Like my brain's way too linear. I was like, you know, going from, you know, desert rat to uh, climbing a big glaciated peak at 20,000 feet. I mean, I've hardly even camped out. Uh, And then so I got intrigued by that. And and I, I got intrigued by Sam's belief that it was possible. And we started training for the next year. Uh, we went out and got sponsorship from the American Foundation for the Blind, who are going to use this as like an advocacy campaign for what blind people can do. Uh, and I, uh, uh, we went to like Long's Peak, uh, say in Colorado. But the funny thing is that uh, Sam wanted to go in the winter, which you know nobody summits Long Peak in the winter. It's like it's you know it's freezing cold. It's super windy. So we went in January. We we trudged up to the Boulder Field to, you know, we didn't get anywhere near the summit. Uh, it was a hundred mile an hour winds. Like I think it was the biggest recorded winds in like ten years. Um, we sat there in our tent, you know, just thinking that the tent tent was going to be ripped away. In the morning we decided we had to get out of there. We we climbed out. Uh, Sam. Uh, lost a snowshoe I remember in the deep snow so he was limping along with one foot like sinking into three four foot deep snow Um, I remember I lost my goggles and my eyelids were frozen together they were literally my eyelids frozen together I remember getting down in the parking lot and heating up the car and prying my eyelids open (laughs) and uh, but you know here's the crazy thing about that experience even though we didn't even have a chance of hell of summiting we, I thought like if, if, if we could achieve this, like if we could survive, if we could take care of each other in this really crazy, scary environment, then, you know, why am I like uh, standing on the beach and not you know, just kind of dipping one toe into this, into this project? I should commit. And, you know, so, so in a weird backwards way, that experience was the thing that made me commit to this process of training for Denali learning how to navigate on a rope team, learning how to drag each other out of crevasses, 
learning how to organize my pack and cook stoves on meals and set up tents with my gloves on and whiteouts. And, um, and, and uh, a year later, uh, Sam and I reached the summit of Denali um, after 20 days on the mountain. Uh, and I found out later um, it was Helen Keller's birthday when we sit on top. <laughs> wow. So there's one other experience that I want to ask you about. I mean, you wrote about it in the book, um, and that was the experience of meeting and, and falling in love with your wife. And I'm, I'm so curious what that experience is like when you can't physically see somebody. Because um, I'd imagine it's just a totally different, like, yeah, I mean, like, how, how is it different than, you know, when we have the situation where we can actually see somebody? Well, I mean, to be a little bit blunt and uh, piggy, you know, <laughs> right. like, uh, uh, you know, I had two older brothers and they're always like, she's hot. Oh, yeah, she's a fox. She's, she's <laughs> this and that. And I was like, well, I don't how am I going to know if somebody's a fox or not? So. Uh, um, so one, I got a guide dog and um, and I found that my dog was this amazing uh, magnet for women. Um, <laughs> it was really great having my beautiful German Shepherd there, you know, and can I pet your dog? Yeah, well, of course. Uh, and I, I invented some uh, handshakes with my friends. I would shake hands with them. Uh, they'd come over to me and innocently shake my hand, but they were shaking my hand in a way that they would tell me, you know, uh, what she looked like. <laughs> so I hate, I hate yeah, sorry, but blind guys are pigs uh, too. But, uh, but, but really when I met my wife, I had nobody to give me the handshake because I just moved out to Arizona. She was a teacher at my school, uh-huh. and um, she was the sixth grade teacher. I was the fifth grade teacher, and she was the showcase teacher that would like, you know, she's the master teacher that you would go and sit in her classroom and take notes. And um, so I sat in the back of her classroom, and um, I, I remember her reading a story to to her kids and just thinking, wow, she has the most beautiful, beautiful voice. God, like, uh, you know, I, 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 there's, there's, you know, and almost not caring like what the, what the physical side was just mm-hmm. saying, this is so, so beautiful. Um, and, um, and then I got little clues cause I'd shake her hand and she had like, you know, a nice thin hand with long <laughs> fingers and kind of little calluses on her fingers that said, okay, I'm, I'm athletic. So yeah, I mean, my pig quality was kicking in a little bit cause I, you know, wasn't like this pure blind guy that just, just was going on faith, but sure. um, it, it really was quite faith. It, it, it really is. Um, and, um, so, so yeah, we started dating and, uh, uh, having a office romance and, um, I walked into a teacher's meeting late one day and, uh, the the dog had been getting to know Ellie and he'd beelined across the, the the room at the conference room with all the teachers watching and laid his head on Ellie's lap and like our little secret was out of the bag so uh so yeah I asked Ellie to marry me and we moved here to Colorado um where I wanted to start my life as a climber I wanted to climb the seven summits and uh Ellie said you know hey I don't I don't just move with people unless I'm married and I'm like, oh, okay. So um, we climbed this beautiful rock face in Arizona in Phoenix called the Praying Monk. And uh, at the top, I uh, pulled out a little, you know, your teacher salary. So you didn't have much money. So I had a little tiny bottle of champagne and a little uh, candy ring. And I put it around her finger and asked me to marry me. And we moved to Colorado. That was in 1997. Mm. Wow. Um one other question. What is it like to raise kids when you can't see? And, um, you know, uh, like what is, what is the parenting experience like? Well, I, I've worried about that, you know, like just the basic things, like how will I watch a baby, you know, like a little toddler running around. And, um, so what, like I would create systems, you know, uh, like I would put these little squeaky shoes on Emma when she was little so that her, feet would make little squeaky noises so I could hear her running around and I had a rule you know like Emma when daddy says Emma where are you can't play little tricks you have to say I'm right here dad uh-huh. uh, and so uh, and then I had books in braille that I could read her books in braille um, and uh, and and so there are ways of getting by um, when when um, we decided that we were going to add to the family well, we decided that we we're going to adopt a little boy uh, and the natural place that we decided to go to was Nepal. It, it was a country that had given me so much 
so many gifts. And so it was a natural place for us to look. So I went and uh, adopted this little boy named Arjun. Uh, it was a year and a half <laughs> roller coaster ride uh, trying to bring this boy home. But that was a real fear because I was like, okay, it's a boy now. Uh, you know, Emma, Emma was pretty easy, but like a crazy little rambunctious boy. Um, I, I just, I really worried. And how would I be able to play catch with him and um, all those things that you worry about, but blindness makes you worry more. Um, but despite all those fears and apprehensions, you know, um, I decided that this was a good thing. It would be great for our family. And there's so many kids in the world that are beautiful kids that just need homes. And uh, so this is like the classic win-win, right? Like bless our family with this incredible kid and, uh, and, and give him a good life too. Today's episode of The Unmistakable Creative is sponsored by Design Crowd. Unmistakable Creative listeners have used Design Crowd for logo, web, and graphic design. Here's how it works. You go to designcrowd.com and you set up your design brief and you'll get submissions from anywhere between 60 to 100 designers from around the world. If you like the designs you get, you can then improve payment. If you don't like what you get, you can go back to the crowd and ask for more or ask for your money back. To see what other unmistakable creative listeners have designed and save 100 bucks on your first project, visit designcrowd.com slash creative and use the promo code creative at checkout for $100 off. Today's episode is also sponsored by our friends at HostGator. They host your website and they have 24-7 live support via phone, chat, and email. An easy to use website builder if you're not tech savvy, one-click WordPress installs, and if you want to switch from an existing host to HostGator, it's free and it's simple. And because you're an unmistakable creative listener, you're getting 30% off all of their hosting packages. So visit hostgator.com slash creative and use the promo code creative at checkout for 30% off. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I really, the story of the adoption really struck me as well. And, and I'm curious to have this combination of both the inability to see, but also a language barrier um, that exists. I mean, how did that, how did you, one, how did you navigate that and come out of it? Yeah, he would be chattering at me and I don't like, you know, playing with my cane, my long white cane and my talking watch. And I, yeah, I went over to visit him a couple times in Nepal at first as we were going through all the massive amounts of paperwork and uncertainty. At one point, we didn't even think we were going to be able to ever bring him home because um, there was a civil war going on in Nepal and they shut down all adoption. So I just went back over there just to say, like, hey, we're still here. Like, we may never be able to bring you home, but I'm still I'm still here for you. Um, so I'd bring him to my hotel and uh, we'd play like um, I brought my buddy Rob Raker, who's one of my climbing partners. And we'd all three of us like, you know, play catch. I, I wouldn't be playing the catch. I'd be throwing the ball and then Rob would be catching it. <laughs> and uh, and I'd carry him around on my shoulders uh, and uh, play like crazy games, you know, like running around with him. And, uh, and you know, you, with kids, it's like dogs. You don't really need to speak, you know. It's like you just run around and play. So we, we were able to get through that. But I remember one time um, when I first met him, we were in the hotel room. And he had to go to the bathroom. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I do? Because in Nepal, you don't sit on a toilet. You know, you, you stand up and over a hole usually mm -hmm. and you don't use toilet paper either you just like use your hand and then wash your hand in a glass of water or something so um i was i was like oh my god this kid's never wiped before uh so you know he, he stood up on the toilet seat you know and uh i was like oh my god what do i do here so anyway uh you know i had to teach my boy a little five-year-old boy how to poop you know western style so i figured blind or not you know that's what a dad does you dive in and you'd, you'd, you'd be a parent yeah yeah holy. um well, let's do this. Uh, I want to finish by talking uh, specifically about the kayak trip uh, through the Grand Canyon uh, because, you know, like mountains are one thing. As a surfer, I know that, that moving water, uh, regardless of where it at, where it is, is probably one of the most unpredictable things imaginable. Uh, you know, like, you know, I, I, I snowboard as well. And I always say I'm like, you know, standing on a snowboard, you know, totally different beast than moving water. Uh, because moving water kind of has sort of a rhythm and a mind of its own. So, I'm curious, you know, when you can't see, like, how do you explain to me one, how you train for something like this and how you navigate that kind of terrain? Well, that was the, you know, that was where the fear lies, you know, because climbing you're it's slow and methodical and you can control your pace and, uh -huh. you know, you're, you're, 
in a way you're taking like a really scary you know wind blowing and stuff like that snow falling steep terrain but you can you can move through that with some ownership but as you know through surfing you are not always in charge so I found that for me, whether I'm blind or not, I think the scary part of kayaking was just letting go and understanding like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm owning the situation because I want to get in position, but I, but I also then have to let go and just ride the energy of this massive power that's beneath me. Uh, and so, you know, and then as a blind person, not being able to see those rapids hitting you from every direction, uh, I had a good friend, my friend Rob Raker, who'd, who taught me how to do my first combat role and stood in that freezing cold Colorado lake for a couple hours as I did a few shaky rolls. And then we got excited uh, and I said, hey, do you think we could do a, like an easy river trip? And we started training and then eventually I had been down the Grand Canyon before uh, rafting with some blind kids as part of our No Barriers organization. Uh, no Barriers is an organization that we help kids uh, with challenges and adults with challenges, uh, physical challenges, as well as, you know, psychological and emotional challenges to break through barriers and find purpose in our in our lives. So I'd been down the Grand Canyon with those kids. So I had this idea that it would be so cool to be able to train and to, like it, it just seemed preposterous to be able to think about kayaking the Grand Canyon, but it got under my skin and I really wanted to pursue this. And uh, so six years it wound up being, uh, you know, learning how to c communicate with my guides, um, you know, very uh, direct uh very specific directions, communication systems, you know, knowing that if you're a foot or two to the left or a foot or two too far to the right, you're going to get hammered. Um, so very precise communication systems, high tech radio systems that were waterproof that, uh, you know, I could communicate in real time with my with my guides um, and also the the construction of the team, meaning like I had a guide behind me, but I also, you know, as that guy's trying to guide me he's trying to pick the line that turned out to be really hard because you're like going through this chaos you know 20 foot waves hitting you left and right so we actually wound up putting someone in front of me who was picking the line and the guy behind me was guiding me and also following that person and then we'd have a person in the very back who we call the hail mary who's there just to pick up the pieces if you you know smash into a rock and somebody's swimming and that's me or my guide, by the way, because a lot of times my guide would get me around some massive hole and then they would get just swallowed and spit out. And, you know, so now I'm without a guide. So the Hail Mary comes in and swoops in and now takes over. And then if possible, a couple people down at the bottom in the eddies, you know, waiting to pick up the pieces uh, in case uh, somebody gets uh, hammered. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, really a lot to work out in this six year process of getting ready to kayak the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is like this incredible natural wonder of the world. I mean, when you are down in the bottom on the river, you, there's walls that are thousands of feet tall. You can hear the echo. You can touch them. They're billions of years old. I mean, to me, that was that was enough of a motivation to be able to go down this, you know, Colorado River, the gauntlet to some of the most incredible uh, whitewater in North America and have this incredible adventure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that um, really kind of uh, I took away from uh, spending time, you know, reading this book was, you know, most of us in life have imagined barriers and the people that you have, you know, come across in your life and in your own work have real barriers. And I'm curious what those of us who have imagined barriers can learn from people who have real barriers. And why is it that, you know, we construct imagined barriers when people, you know, like you go out and do what you do? Well, so you would, you know, one might think that because I've experienced some barriers and I've been able to break through them that like I kind of get immune to that. But I, I think honestly, the opposite happens. I think I feel more sensitive, more empathetic towards all the barriers that do exist out there. I think that's one of the reasons I created No Barriers and uh, and, and wrote the book, um, because you know, people come up to me all the time and they go, you know, my barriers are nothing compared to yours. And I think, well, that's not true. Validate your barriers, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, people go out and uh, they they get hurt. You know, they try something. They, they have such excitement and hope and then they get hurt. And that 
that hurt feeling, that hurt thing gets, you know, embedded in their soul like trauma, you know, and then they just, they have this visible negative vibration now in their soul. That's real. That's a real barrier. That's not imagined. That's real. That's a real thing. Um, you know, people who are just afraid, you know, have tremendous fear. So they stop and they're in a safe spot in their life. And like, I, I want to go higher, but I, I, you know, the safe spot is, is what I know. So I'm going to stay here. That's real too. Mm-hmm. Or, or a kid, um, who's lost a parent or uh, a family member or a kid who grows up without a support system. Uh, you have no great, good role models in your life. So I, it, what I'm saying is that I, I think we all have barriers. And in a way, those barriers are, the, are, are in a way, they kind of are like the glue. They unite us into one big human family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't honestly think my barriers are any bigger or any more significant than anyone else's. And I wanted to really make sure I was I communicated that in the book because uh, there are people I wrote about soldiers injured by war and it wasn't the physical part that they um that they that they that that was the hard part that the physical part they could live with mm-hmm. it was it was the shame uh it was the fear it was the apprehension uh it was the it was the uh uh sometimes you know cynicism that started wrapping around their brains like prison bars mm-hmm. those things became real things that actually were the real barriers of their lives mm-hmm. So I realize there's one other loss that I, I didn't get to ask you about that I wanted to ask about. I mean, I know you wrote uh, about the loss of your brother, and it, it seems like he played a really significant role in your life. And I, I'm curious, one, you know, what are the lessons that you took away from your brother? Um, and, uh, you know, how did you process that loss and get out of it? So No Barriers has a big uh, program that we work with injured vets, veterans. And my brother, even though he wasn't a veteran, he he, he sort of mirrored some of that behavior that I've experienced a lot since then. I mean, so he was a guy who helped others. He served others. You know, he was always the guy that was there for his friends and there for his family. Um, but, and there for me as I was going blind, like giving me confidence and making jokes and saying, Hey, you'll get, you're going to get through this. You're fine. Tough it out, you know, suck it up. Um, and then, uh, you know, when he started declining from alcoholism, uh, and just really going into mm, kind of bipolarism uh, based on alcoholism. He couldn't accept help in his life. Uh, so he tried to tough it out, you know, with all the things that we learned. Tough it up and, you know, be, you can handle this, right? You're a man. And because of that, he just went into slow decline and would never let anyone into his life to, you know, and, and would never sort of open his heart and be vulnerable uh, to the situation. You know, he's always trying to tough it out. And, um, you know, so we did everything we could. You know, we we bought his house that was about to get lost. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd come and clean his house and we'd um, clean the wounds out, you know, after he'd had a car accident. And, you know, and, and there's just nothing we could do. And uh, so, yeah, it was it it, it, it made me realize that, um, you know, there's it's a very fragile process you know life and um if we if we can better equip ourselves uh for that journey and build that map that's gonna get us to where we want to go we are so much in better shape uh and mark couldn't do that and i think his life became the um map of no barriers now we talk about these elements these things along the journey that we have to sort of confront and understand and wrap our heads around. One of them is a very simple idea of what a rope team looks like. You know, when you're in the mountains, you're roped together with the people around you. So what does that rope team look like and how do you utilize that team and how do you use them, you know, kind of let go of your ego and use that team to elevate you, to lift you up. Um, so yeah, I think, I think again, repeating a lot of those elements um, that became the basis of no barriers uh, were taken from my brother's life. I love my brother and I miss him every day. Mm. Well, um, this has been really, really uh, eye-opening and, and thought-provoking. So I have one last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, I think 
and I know the word journey gets used way too much, but I think there, there is a fun journey and it's an adventure in life. And so my second book, I wrote this book called The Adversity Advantage, and we divided people into three categories, quitters, campers, or climbers. Uh, quitters are hard to work with because sometimes people have this incredibly strong sabotage mechanism within them that where they quit before they even start. But that's a that's a rare group. Um, most people are what we define as campers. You know, we 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 climb and then we stop. And I think I alluded to that all the reasons or many of the reasons why we stop. But we stop now and we get shoved to the sidelines. Um, it's a very tenuous thing. Uh, and, and now we're in this dark place and we stagnate personally. But but worse than that, all our all our talent, all our life force, all our energy, all our potential, it's, it's lost to the world. So it's a huge loss to the world. Climbers, and I call them climbers just because I like climbing. Climbers are those people who figure out a way to continue to grow and evolve and challenge themselves every day of their lives. So I'm not telling anyone to go out and climb Mount Everest or kayak the Grand Canyon. That was my journey. But the beauty of life is going out and finding, experiencing this journey, trying to build that map, doing some flailing and bleeding along the way because there's no way to avoid that stuff. And... Uh, and challenging yourself in some way that 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 makes you that that teaches you things, sort of gifts, I guess I'd call them, that then you can use to elevate the people around you. Uh, so I I think being unmistakable, I'll just I'll just say it's that you know, ultimately, how do we use all the stuff that we've learned through our struggles to elevate uh, the world around us in some in some very cool special way. Hmm. Well, I, I think that makes a really uh, fitting end to our conversation. Uh, where can people learn more about you, your work, your books? Well, they can go to touchthetop.com, which is my website, or they can go to nobarriersusa.org and learn about No Barriers. We have uh, tremendous programs for youth and veterans and folks with physical challenges, these incredible transformative journeys that we take people on. And we talk about what this No Barriers life looks like. And then we have big events, 1,000, 2,000 people coming together. Um, our next one is actually a year out in October in New York City in Manhattan. We'll probably have two or 3,000 people coming to our summit. And that's a big celebration of this No Barriers life. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.